Hi all, you're listening to At The Bean, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of At The Beam. I'm here with uh, Trudy Wu, and today we'll be discussing an oropharyngeal cancer case. So um, P16 positive oropharyngeal cancer management is actively being optimized with ongoing research in dose de-escalation. So today we will discuss the current standard approach. So Trudy, you're in clinic and you're about to see a 55-year-old man who initially had some dinophagia and noticed that his left tonsil appeared swollen. He sees an ENT who thinks the tonsil swelling is inflammatory and then proceeds with a left tonsillectomy. The pathology comes back with a P16 positive squamous cell carcinoma. What are the important details in the history you want to know? So I'd like to evaluate his overall health, including comorbidities, and explore his social history with a specific focus on smoking and alcohol use. On exam, I would assess tongue mobility, look for trismus, and palpate for cervical lymphadenopathy. Although limited tongue mobility and trismus could indicate more extensive disease, the patient will be recovering from a tonsillectomy, so limitations may also be due to post-operative changes in swelling. Also, very important would be to assess his swelling function and nutritional status after his surgery and whether he has otalgia at the presentation, which can represent referred pain. That's great. Yeah, so he's a, a never smoker. He drinks two to three beers a week. There aren't any abnormal physical exam findings. He has a healing post-tonsillectomy scar and no palpable adenopathy. He has some mild discomfort with swallowing and has mostly been eating soft food since his surgery. Uh, and he's noticed his weight has been down about five pounds since his surgery. So he asks you, what is oropharyngeal cancer? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so oropharyngeal cancer is a squamous cell cancer of the oropharynx and is the most common head and neck cancer in the United States, which can affect both men and women, but more so in men. The oropharynx consists of several subsites, including the soft palate, palatine tonsils, base of tongue, and pharyngeal wall. Historically, these cancers had the same risk factors as other head and neck squamous cell cancers, such as alcohol and tobacco use. However, most cancers in the United States are now related to human papillomavirus, HPV, even in those with an alcohol or tobacco history. HPV-related oropharyngeal cancer most commonly develops in the base of tongue or tonsils, and HPV status is important for risk stratification and is now part of the staging system. That's perfect. Um, Just a couple more things to add. The uh, first site of drainage for cancers that originate in the oropharynx is the cervical nodes. Um, That's why doing a physical exam is very important. Um, Typically, the first site of involved lymph nodes are at level two, which are at the base of the skull. They're bounded anteriorly by the posterior border of the submandibular glands, posteriorly by the sternocleidomastoid, medially by the internal carotid artery, and down to the inferior border of the hyoid bone. Disease can involve the level three and four neck nodes, as well as 1B. Now, distant disease is uncommon, but when it does occur, it can involve the lungs and bones, as well as some unusual sites, such as uh, soft tissue, thyroid, brain, and liver. So, Trudy, what is the staging for P16-positive oropharyngeal cancer? Sure. So, very important for listeners out there to understand that the staging criteria for P16-positive versus P16-negative change with the AJCC 8th edition because the prognosis for P16-positive is generally more favorable. For P16-positive clinical oropharyngeal cancer staging, 
Uh, T1 represents a lesion that is less than or equal to two centimeters. T2, 2.1 to four centimeters. T3, greater than four centimeters or extending to the epiglottis, which is the inferior border of the oropharynx. And then T4, which is invasion to surrounding structures, such as the larynx, extrinsic muscles of the tongue, medial pterygoid or hard palate. N1 is any number of lymph nodes on the ipsilateral side if they are less than or equal to six centimeters. N2, if contralateral or bilateral lymph nodes are present. N3 represents any lymph node that is greater than six centimeters. That's great. Yeah, and a few key points to mention. This is why assessing tongue mobility and trismus is so important in oropharyngeal cancers, because if it's clinically present, that would automatically upstage the patient to a clinical T4. So 6 cm is the number we want to remember when thinking of lymph node size, and any lymph node that's greater than 6 cm is going to automatically be an N3. The pathologic nodal staging is different. For example, if the patient gets a neck dissection and there are less than or equal to four uh, lymph nodes that are positive, it's going to be a pathologic N1. Anything greater than four lymph nodes um, is going to be a pathologic N2. Now, remember this patient had a tonsillectomy upfront for diagnosis. This is uh, essentially equivalent to a biopsy. So it's not an oncologic surgery, so we can't stage them appropriately. So the patient asks you what the next steps are and what do you want to tell them? So I would start off by reviewing the PATH report in closer detail and see if there's mention of PNI or LVSI. The reason being is that these pathologic features would argue for the use of post-operative radiation if the patient goes back for an oncologic surgery. Other high-risk features include a PT34 tumor, which is a size criteria of greater than four centimeters, closed or positive margins, PN2 to N3 disease, or extracapsular extension. These would all warrant radiation plus or minus chemotherapy. All right, that's great. Yeah, so chemotherapy is added to postoperative RT when there are positive margins or extracapsular extension. So you look at the patient's pathology, and it so happens that there's evidence of PNI and LVI. Also, the tonsillectomy specimen was reviewed by the pathologist, and the uh, SCC measured at least 4.3 cm in size. Now, knowing all this information, you counsel the patient that if he gets an oncologic surgery with transoral robotic surgery or TORS, he'll likely need postoperative RT afterwards based on the information we already know. So Trudy, what are your next steps? So knowing that this patient has some adverse features, I would order a staging PET-CT to evaluate for any regional or distant metastatic disease. All right. So he has a PET-CT that shows uptake in multiple lymph nodes on the ipsilateral side, all less than 6 cm in size. You're discussing his case at tumor board. What would your recommendation be? So with this new information, his clinical stage would be a CT3N1. Since we know that he has positive LVSI and positive PNI from his tonsillectomy specimen, and that he would likely require port anyways, I would advocate for definitive chemoradiation to spare him from the additional toxicity of a repeat surgery, modified radical neck dissection, and postoperative radiation. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. So um, your patient decides to move forward with radiation. He sees a dentist and he's cleared and has been counseled by a speech therapist. How would you simulate him and can you describe your prescription and treatment volumes? So I would obtain a CT simulation scan with IV contrast with the patient supine with the head and neck thermoplastic face mask for mobilization, neck extended and shoulders down. To aid with target delineation, I would fuse any available diagnostic scans such as a PET CT. I would then prescribe 70 gray to any suspicious sites for residual disease near the resected tonsil and gross FDG avid nodes. For areas that are at high risk for subclinical spread, I would treat to 60 gray. 
for this patient. This would include the adjacent peripharyngeal space, soft palate, superior tonsillar pillars, and ipsilateral level two through four neck, including the high level two and the retrostyloid space, and the lateral retropharyngeal lymph nodes extending up to the skull base. The regions at low risk for spread, I would prescribe 54 gray. This would include the contralateral level two through four neck. The radiation would be delivered via dose modulation with IMRT or VMAT for SIB, all in 35 fractions. That's great. Uh, some things to note, if the patient is considered high risk, you can consider including levels 5 and 1B on the side with involved nodes. Also, for OARs, you want to be mindful that in um, the head and neck are the mandible, parotid gland, spinal cord, brainstem, as well as the brachial plexus, pharyngeal constrictors, some mandibular glands, as well as the cochlea. So your patient asks whether or not he needs uh, chemotherapy. How do you respond? Given that he has a T3 lesion with multiple nodes on the epsilateral side, he would have been staged a T3 N2B in the AJCC 7th edition, which would have been a stage 4A. This would have been included in multiple large randomized controlled trials, which show that the addition of chemotherapy to definitive radiation improved local control, disease-free survival, and overall survival. However, this has come at a cost of increased toxicity. And in this younger, otherwise healthy patient, I would probably advocate for concurrent chemo with radiation. All right, that's great. So you're reviewing the plan. Uh, what dose constraints are you going to use for your brachial plexus, parotid gland, and the mandible? Um, a D-max of 66 for the brachial plexus, parotid gland mean of less than 26 gray, larynx less than 45 gray, and then mandible less than 70 gray. Fantastic. So uh, what side effects are you going to counsel the patient on? I would tell him to expect the side effects to be predictable and develop as treatment goes on. He will notice fatigue, dyskusia, mucositis, dysphagia, odynophagia, xerostermia, and dermatitis to the neck. For late toxicity, we will mostly monitor him for neck fibrosis, persistent xerostermia, and resultant risk for dental decay, dyskusia, dysphagia, and hypothyroidism. Yeah, exactly. So um, your patients will typically start to feel better a few weeks after their final fraction. A rare but severe toxicity is osteoradionecrosis, which can develop in, last, um, in less than 5% of patients. So after patients complete their treatment, follow-up is important to monitor for disease recurrence. So Trudy, how are you going to arrange surveillance for this patient? I would see him with the scope every three months for the first year, lengthening to four to six-month intervals during the second year post-treatment. Once we hit the five-year mark, patients can follow up annually. Additionally, it's important to check TSH since many patients may develop hypothyroidism after radiation and require levothyroxine. For this patient, I would probably want to obtain a PET-CT at three months post-treatment to assess response to chemorads. Man, excellent work, Trudy. So uh, this concludes our episode on oropharyngeal cancer. Thank you to Dr. Beth Beadle at Stanford University for helping us review today's case. You can find the show notes on our website at atthebeam.com and uh, be well and remember to trust, but always verify. But one of the times I went skydiving, there's a photo of me. I, I'll see if I can find it. They they strap you on with somebody and the uh -huh. guy was like three quarters my size. <laughs> so, there's a picture of me in the air. It looks like I'm wearing a human backpack. <laughs> I'm this huge dude with this tiny guy on my back. I need that picture now. I gotta, I gotta find it.